buy a gun if you're on that list if you have um, this is domestic violence conviction you know th those types from of a year ago legal experts react to buffalo um Karen well, well let me let me give some stats on that since 1999 to 2021 so the first law this erpo that you just talked about the extreme risk protection order that are in 19 states, including the District of and the District of Columbia. Since 1999 to 2021, 17,000 ERPO petitions have been filed. But, but in New York, it's only been on the books, this is back to your training issue, it's only been on the New York books since 2019. It, there was a whole bunch of states that, including Florida, despite its governor, when he wasn't governor, because of Parkland and the, sh the shooting in the high school there, that adopted, uh, so there was a couple in the beginning like Connecticut, like 1999, and then there was a whole bunch after Parkland that said, sure, that's a great idea. We should have a way to keep guns out of certain people's hands and have a process to report system and process to make that happen. In New York, since 2019, there's only been 589 total ERPO petitions filed. That's not a lot for the size of the state that you described and one for which you were prosecuted, right? 589 in that many years, that's not a lot. That shows me, that proves to me your point, which is the not user-friendly interface of the online application information process, the lack of training at law enforcement, at schools, with parents. I see no public service announcements about this on television in New York, Same. zero, zero. Now, Hochul, the governor, of course, this is her hometown massacre. She says, oh, there's loopholes. We're going to close all these loopholes like they did in 2019 with the with the SAFE Act in New York. And I'm sure they'll try to do that uh, within the contours of the Second Amendment that we're going to talk about in the next part of the segment. Um, and the limits that the governments have, the state governments have, because of the Supreme Court position on this, soon to be amplified by a new ruling this summer on the right to, con to carry concealed weapons and permits related to that. So with that another back, New York backdrop, case. <laughs> another New York case. Well, of course, because New York has, New York probably has. Would you say it has the most stringent, as bad as they are? Oh yeah, it allowed for the Buffalo massacre, right? So let's put that in context. As bad as as ba the massacre happened in a state that has the probably the most stringent gun control laws on its books, bar none. Let's, let's talk and about New York happens. for a second. Let's let's just sure. talk about New York particularly, just to put this in context, because I, I do think it's important. For people who don't know New York or have never been to New York. Now, I'm not from New York. I wasn't born and raised here, but I've been here my entire adult life. And I've been in New York City my entire adult life. And when I was in New York City, in Manhattan, my whole life, I just thought, why would anyone have a gun? Why, why do people love guns? Why do, you know, why do, why does this country love their guns so much? Why is this such an issue? And I, I, I really genuinely couldn't understand it because... I, you know, you call 911 in New York City, and the police are here in less than a minute, and they are there to protect you, and, you know, if, if you're not a person of color or mentally ill, you're not afraid of the police, typically, you know, coming. You think that they actually help you. So I really didn't understand that. And then on 9-11, you know, 9-11 happens to New York City, and um, that changed a lot of people. People stopped feeling safe and secure. And... I think there was a little bit of a change of, of people's feelings towards guns, but still very much, we don't want guns. And after 9-11, um, we, uh, we purchased a, 
a home, a small home um, in upstate New York because we wanted to have a place to go if something ever happened again. You know, we, we happened to live right by ground zero and we were here that day and that's a whole other story and a whole other conversation for a whole other time. Um, but, but we ended up um, buying a house in upstate New York and it's about 100 miles from the city and it's a small town and it's the first time I really started to understand why people feel the way they feel about guns and why this is such an issue. So we had, there's a, everybody in upstate uh, in, in our town, most people have guns and they have multiple guns and many of them are hunters. But there's another reason why they have guns and that is because uh, my town doesn't have a police force. <laughs> when we had budget issues, the first thing they voted to get rid of was their police department, which I thought to myself, coming from law enforcement, I didn't know that was an option, you know, and maybe I'm naive, um, but I really didn't understand. And, and we had a situation where we had to call 911, and the state police came, and it took them about an hour to get to us because they covered the entire New York state. And I asked the police, I mean, thankfully nothing bad happened, but I said to them, you know, don't understand what do people do well how do, how do you protect yourself and the way they they said everybody has a gun and you need to have a gun and you know that is a very interesting and very telling I thought about sort of why it is people feel so strongly about the idea of being able to protect yourself and protecting your family and I, I now have a lot of friends in upstate New York and the idea of outsourcing the safety and security of your family to law enforcement, it, they, it just isn't a thing. And it, so I, I really do think as a country, we are so different and we have so many different people that we have to figure out a way to live together and regulate. I mean, I do think a gun in New York City, for example, you know, where you are in such a dense population area Two guns in New York City equals bad. You know, you, you're either going to shoot each other, you're going to get shot, or someone else, you know, you're so crowded, you're going to miss and shoot someone else. Like, that, there is no place for guns, in my opinion, in New York City outside the hands of law enforcement. Outside New York State, you have to figure out a way to allow people to safely have their guns, but also at the same time when you have these red flags, you know, like, for example, why do you need to have an AR-15? It's automatic. Why does anyone need that to protect your family or protect well, yourself? We're going to talk to about. We're going to. We're, we're going to talk. I get it. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court and what weaponry is is allowed and isn't, and and we're going to talk about the what's obviously going to be the hypocrisy of their analysis of 14th century abortion laws and not using that same analysis when it goes back to the Founding Fathers and what they expected about the Second Amendment, just based on state constitutional law that was on the books in the colonies and in the states prior to the U.S. Constitution being built. That's the genesis of it, and that's the historical research about it. But our, our Founding Fathers were using muskets, and they weren't semi-automatic or automatic muskets. They were muskets. So, for, so the whole analysis around handguns and semi-automatic weapons, you know, sort of, you know, for me, if you're, if you're going to go back to history and texts, 
which is what the originalists and the Federalist Society loves to do. They don't do that when it comes to the Second Amendment, and we're going to talk about that next. Let me just, let me just in this conversation, let, let me, and people have heard me say this before, I have a slightly different view from you, which is good. That's why we have legal AF and the dialogue. I don't think the Second Amendment, and I'm, I'm, I'm a sort of a weirdo, because I'm a card-carrying member of the ACLU, and, but where I could in states that I lived in, I also had a concealed weapons permit. And I own weapons. I own, a hand, I own handguns. They're just, I live in New York City, so they're locked away, disassembled in a safe until there's a time when I can actually uh, use or carry that. And it's totally for self-protection or recreational. I used to go in Miami with my friends to a, sh uh, a shooting range to shoot a box of ammo, go have brunch, because personal safety was also important in Miami. Because if a hurricane came through, sort of like your upstate New York example, if a hurricane came through in FEMA and law enforcement can't get to you for three days, you're sort of on your own. And like you said, you have to, you can't outsource to normal uh, public safety. You have to kind of mm, do it on your own when somebody comes knocking on the door, uh, you know, looking to harm your family. So that, that was totally understandable, which is why most of Miami has a handgun in there, including grandma's, in their uh, nightstand now. The thing about New York City and you know, one gun is two, two guns are too many. I'm not sure about that, and we'll talk about we'll talk about where I think that new and you where you think that New York Rifle Association case with the Supreme Court, which was argued in November to be ruled on this summer, means for concealed that? weapons permit. Because of the sec the Second Amendment is not state by state. The Second Amendment Amendment is not community by community. If since 2008 there is a right to have um, a handgun. For, for personal protection. I'm not sure it matters exactly where you live. You could regulate around it. Um, but it, the problem has not been the good people in shooting other people. I mean, it happens occasionally. Some, like you said, somebody loses their head for a moment, and in a moment of, you know, whatever, it pulls out a handgun and shoots somebody. But that, the, it's the methodical nature of mass murder is not, is not stopped because Michael Popak has a handgun. In his, in his, you know, in his drawer for personal safety, um, that that that's not. We're regulating sort of the wrong end of it. So that's just that's just my. It's different than your opinion, but it's just my opinion about. No, no, about my, hand, my, but hand, my but handguns. I don't have an AR-15. Yeah, I was going to say no. I I think our opinions are more similar than you think. I, what I was trying to say was, I my opinion evolved when I moved, you know, when I became such a part of the upstate New York community and I, and I learned sort of what, what you were saying about the personal protection. And, and after 9-11, you know, the police were, couldn't get to us either, you know, and, and whatever. It was a very, there, I, I actually do understand what you're saying, but you know, the problem is for people like me, having a gun, uh, even upstate, is not an option. You know, I have, I have a kid who's on the autism spectrum. And having a gun in my home would not be safe. And, you know, I need to have, so, but I do understand others who, who do and, and will. I, I need them to make sure that people like me and my family are still protected from those individuals who, who might be mentally ill or evil or racist or hate-filled. And you know what? You've got to do something about that, you know, because you, you can't allow those individuals to lawfully purchase weapons in this country. It's not right. It's not safe. And I really think that there are laws on the books, you know, and, and you were saying that New York State has, has the strongest laws in the country. 
And it's true, we do. You know, we, we passed, um, we passed uh, an illegal possession of, of a weapon. Uh, first of all, it's very hard to get a, a license in New York State, which is what this case is going to be about that we're going to talk about that's supposed to come down next month by the Supreme Court. But it's very hard to get a license. Um, almost, almost nobody can get, can get one. Um, at least in New York City in particular, but in upstate New York, it's very hard to get a, a, a carry permit. Um, home, in your home, it's a different story. But if you, possess, if you illegally possess a gun in this state, you are, uh, you, the law is that you can be sentenced to up to three, the minimum is three and a half years in prison. There, there, are, no other, there are no other states you know, that, that have a law like that. In some states, it's a misdemeanor to carry an illegal gun. And here it's a felony punishable up to three and a half years, period, full stop. And when I was a prosecutor, one of the hardest things I dealt with was you had a lot of the grandmas that you're talking about in Florida who carry the, you know, carry the... Um, Shout have the gun out in to the Miami stand. grandmas. No, but it's true. I can't tell you how many lawful, law-abiding, good people who forgot they had their gun in their purse forgot they had their, I mean, I had people who had gun in their purse would put it through the metal detector to go into right. the World Trade Center. Because they forgot about, because they they forgot forgot about, about it. it. Like, and they're like, like it was oh their lipstick God. or their compact. Yeah, yeah. Right. I didn't, right. if that's how much it's a part of their culture yeah. to carry a, you know, carry a gun, they don't even think about it, you know, and of course they weren't trying to do something illegal, of course, or it's in their glove box. And, you know, in all of those situations, I, I always analyzed it with, is it lawful in their state? And if so, you know, we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't put the full force of New York New York State's law on the books on them because it's not fair it's not right they certainly didn't need to violate the law but again if you come to if you if you are traveling 200 miles in order to commit a mass murder that is hate filled and racially filled there are so many red flags on the books put aside that 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 thing that happened at school that's just the the year before that's just the one we all know about. I bet if someone did an autopsy into this, his life and his family, I bet you're going to find a hundred red flags. Oh, yeah. You know, whether it's friends, family, he killed internet a, he, usage. He killed a cat. He, he beheaded or killed a cat. I mean, this parents, um, same thing happened with Dylan Roof, who went into the black church in South Carolina. The same thing happened with Zion Synagogue in Pittsburgh. There are always red flags and telltale signs for those that are willing to see them and hear them. And we have to, as you said, we have to socialize and normalize. It's okay to report your kid who has mental health problems to keep him away from a handgun so that dozens of other people, your neighbors, won't be shot and killed. It's okay. In fact, it is your requirement to be a part of civilized society to do that, regardless of your beliefs and feelings about the Second Amendment. Some families, as you said, just can't have guns in the house. It's for, for, for all the different reasons and one of which you, you talked about. So let, let's turn now, I want a little bit about the great replacement theory, which I, which I hate. I hate it too. I also want to talk about the, the, the genesis of it. 
Yeah, yeah, okay, we'll do that. And I want to do this. I want to do the Supreme Court. That's good. Yes, yeah, so three things. We have so, three things to talk so, about left. Yeah, and we got we got ten minutes, so let's let's do it quick. So great replacement theory is a Nazi based theory that says that 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 the liberal elite slash Jews, I'm just calling it for um, have as part of their dogma. Um, this is a racist trope, by the way, that they will um, get into power and keep power by taking out Scandinavian and other white, white people, i.e. Aryans, and have them replaced with highly fertile immigrants who will come in and replace the white people at higher numbers and side with the elite slash Jews. Maybe they're better looking. Um, and and this is what's called the great replacement theory it's been it has been it's part of the nazi dogma it's it has been adopted one way shape or form by every racist group that's ever lived from the kkk to the neo-nazis um to the to the uh, QAnon now mainstream gop to fox news how do we know that because you see 400 examples literally that the new york times tracked of tucker carlson talking about the elite's plan to use immigration in order to achieve their goals in the electorate and in policy. That, ladies and gentlemen, is exactly, he is, he is art, articulating and using the vocabulary of the great replacement theory. Why does this he's, matter? He's fueling right. hatred. Why, why does any of this matter? I mean, it would be like sort of like, what a bunch of wackos. It's what we talked about last week. It's because these wackos take action and they are animated and weaponized by this type of doctrine and this type of talk. And that's why there's blood on the hands of Elise Stefanik, who's like the number three in the Republican Party, who also uses that language, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingraham, and everybody else on Fox News, because they do it for ratings and so they can have a $30 million house in the Hamptons. They don't care that 10 black people in a supermarket, 10 black Americans in a supermarket in Buffalo gave their life, that that 30 or 40 people in New Zealand died because of the great replacement theory and what it did to the minds of the mentally disturbed and, and sort of disturbed. Uh, they, they don't care what, that it, it motivated Dylan Roof to go kill black parishioners in South Carolina and pick out that church for the same reason that the shooter in Buffalo picked out that supermarket in Buffalo. They don't care. And as I said before, they say they're not racists. They say they're not neo-Nazis, but the neo-Nazis think that they're racist and think that a neo-Nazi leader um, who runs one of these you know, social media platforms for his followers said, we love Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson speaks the truth. So Tucker, you know, the fact that you think that, you know, what you're doing is, is blameless, and they actually got on the air. I don't know if you saw this the other day, Karen. He got on the air the other day because they had to go silent the day after the shooting because they're responsible for it. The next day they came up with their spin. Their spin is his ideology of the shooter was neither left nor right nor Republican nor Democrat. He's just mentally ill, which is what the Republicans okay. always say when they when they want to hold on when they want to protect the Second Amendment. Then he didn't read the 180 page of manifesto and the 30 pages devoted to. Jews trying to harm America and the Great Replacement Theory, where he says, this is the reason that I carved the N-word on my rifle and went to a black neighborhood. Because of you, Tucker Carlson. I, I, I agree with you, but I have, to, I have to just say one thing. 
we cannot allow people who struggle with mental illness to be grouped in the same category and maligned by people like this shooter and other shooters. He is, he is not mentally ill. He is evil. He is evil. He is racist. Okay? People who are mentally ill are not violent. People who are mentally ill are more likely, and there's study after study after study, are more likely to be victims of crime yeah, than point. to be the perpetrators of crime. Good and so point. to call this person mentally ill, I think, is offensive to me, and it's offensive to me on behalf of people who struggle with mental health issues and mental illnesses. Hi, baby. This guy is just, he, he believes in the same thing that, as you said, that Tucker Carlson believes in, and that other neo-Nazis believe in. These are just hate-filled, racist people who are going out and have an agenda, and we have to figure out a way to stop them. We have to figure out a way for people to lawfully possess guns the way the Second Amendment allows it, and at the same time, identify these individuals who have evil and hatred in their heart and prosecute them for the terrorists that they are. This is a, what's known as a domestic terrorist. The FBI has a whole unit that they created for domestic terrorists. It's all about these white supremacists. And they, they are on the FBI's radar screen. There are red flag laws all over the country. It's time to start identifying these people for who they are and do, let the, have the government do the investigation, law enforcement do the investigation they need to do. Go on to places like Reddit and 4chan and this other one that I can't remember what it was called that he was using, Discord, I think it was called. You know, you've got these social media platforms and you've got people on there. Do your investigation, identify these people and take their guns away from them and put them in prison where they belong because they are evil people. Um, so, you know, I just want to briefly talk about the ATF released a report yesterday, which I think was timed, you know, to to the shooting. And I, it was clearly long in the making. But I thought it was a very interesting report because nothing like this has ever been released by the ATF before. They've always had lots and lots and lots of data. But, uh, but the ATF has their hands tied because of Republican presidents or Republican leaders in the past probe into alleged election fraud by former President Trump is moving forward with the selection of a special grand jury. The investigation is focusing on Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia, including that infamous phone call to its Secretary of State asking him to find the votes that Trump needed to win. Donald Trump, I believe, came one step closer today to being criminally charged. I know that people's reaction to the fact that the Manhattan DA's office grand jury session has expired. People believe that that means he most likely will not be criminally charged. But I think actually it's the opposite. I think if you look at all what's going on surrounding Donald Trump, I think what's going to happen is that it is more likely that he will be criminally charged than it has been ever before. And it's for the following reasons. First of all, today, uh, 23 people were seated in a special grand jury in the state of Georgia. Now, a special investigative grand jury is something that sits for, in this particular case, a year. And that's very similar to the special grand jury that was impaneled in um, New York County, in that what it will do is it will exclusively hear evidence about uh, this particular matter. And in this case, it's 23 people sworn to secrecy. We're not going to get to hear what anyone said or did or anyone who went before the grand jury, but they will start hearing uh, testimony from witnesses after May 24th, because that's when the Georgia primary elections are. So 
Um, so they're going to wait. Uh, the DA in Fulton County is going to wait until after that in order to start calling witnesses. But they're also going to subpoena documents and in the end make a recommendation within a year to the District Attorney of Fulton County on whether or not criminal charges should be brought against Donald Trump. Now, if you remember, this is regarding that January 2021 telephone call that Donald Trump made to Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, where he basically said, find the votes, find enough votes. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have. He also called the governor, um, Kemp and asked him to hold a special election, uh, a special presidential election. So I think in both of those instances, it's, they're going to recommend that charges be brought that he did interfere with, um, with the presidential election. In addition, Alvin Bragg, although the grand jury expired last week, as we knew it was going to when uh, he said that there wasn't enough evidence yet, people suspected that therefore, and I did too actually, that the that the criminal um, case was, was dead because the two lead prosecutors on the case, Mark Pomerantz and Carrie Dunn, resigned. So I figured, okay, that means the case is dead. But Alvin Bragg made the absolute unusual step of commenting on a pending investigation in April, on April 7th, 2022, so last month, and said that the investigation is ongoing. And in fact, he put other very well-respected prosecutors on the case, people that I've worked with and who are excellent. And there's still a whole team in place, according to um, DA Bragg, working on the case. And I just don't think a, uh, an elected district attorney would say that if it weren't true. Typically, they don't comment on pending investigations. In fact, you'll see it happen time and time again, where DAs will say, it's not my practice to comment on a pending investigation. But Alvin Bragg took the unusual step to do it because there was such, frankly, misinformation out there about what was happening. So I think he's potentially um, going to bring charges uh, in that case. Again, I have no inside information whatsoever, even though I used to work there. But this is just my prediction, kind of seeing what's happening, the fact that he came out and said that. I also think it, it could be about the exaggerated values or undervalues of his properties, which is what the investigation under Cy Vance was about. Uh, that's been widely reported. Or it could be other, it could be something else. You just don't know what potentially uh, Alvin Bragg could be looking at. So for example, the Trump Organization is under indictment already, and perhaps he's getting closer to indicting Donald Trump in that case. For example, uh, recently in the last week, um, there was a motion filed in um, the civil case of Attorney General uh, Letitia James of the state of New York, Attorney General. And there was a filing that had a transcript of a deposition of the president in a completely unrelated matter. This is a matter where he um, was deposed over a, a fight, basically, that happened in front of the Trump Organization, uh, I'm sorry, the Trump Tower, because he uh, people were protesting, and they were protesting um, racist and other remarks that were made by the former president. And one of his bodyguards or, or security detail ended up pushing somebody or, or, or punching them or manhandling them. 
and as a result, that person is suing uh, the president civilly. And he uh, he was deposed, and he was asked various questions about um, individuals in his organization, in the Trump organization. And in this completely unrelated case, he made statements about these individuals and about this one individual in particular, how Donald Trump was the person in control, and he was in control of, of who made decisions and made decisions about the Trump organization, et cetera. That might be helpful in that in tying him to the case against the Trump or Trump organization, and, and those statements, it appears, would be admissible as evidence as uh, an exception to the hearsay rule because they were made against his penal interest. So that's yet another piece of evidence that Alvin Bragg has that he did not have before uh, against Donald Trump. Finally. Um, the Westchester District Attorney, so Westchester is another county here in New York. It's one of the suburbs of New York City, and it's, uh, it's north of Manhattan, and Trump has a golf course there. And there's a similar investigation going on about the exaggerated uh, valuation or under-evaluation, I'm not sure which, of that golf course. And that is another investigation that's pending against him, as is a federal grand jury uh, that's been impaneled and is hearing evidence regarding uh, January 6th. So on top of all of that, you've got the civil case with Tish James still looking and gathering evidence. And I, I just think there's a lot of activity going on. And the more we learn and the more we see, I just think it's getting closer and closer. And my opinion is that he's getting closer and closer to being charged. And I would not be surprised if we see charges in the next coming year or so, or maybe even sooner. So that's my prediction about everything that's going on right now. It's a lot, and that's what I think will happen. A judge has found former President Donald Trump in contempt in the civil case over his business dealings. The judge found that Trump either didn't hand over documents that New York Attorney General Letitia James requested or that he didn't conduct a sufficient search for them. The judge uh, came to the conclusion that the Attorney General's office did, uh, which is that uh, the president has not lived up to his legal obligations and as a result will now have to pay $10,000 a day in court fines to the court uh, for each day that he is not in compliance with this order. This is really a stunning development. I have never heard of a president or former president being held in contempt of court and, and being uh, held by a judge to have violated a court order such as this. What happened is this is uh, in regards to the Attorney General of the State of New York, Tish James, who is suing Donald Trump civilly for a case that is very similar to the Manhattan DA's probe, which is about the devaluation or inflation evaluation of various properties that he has. So there's this ongoing litigation, and as usual, Donald Trump's uh, what he's trying to do is delay and sue and involve the court process as much as he possibly can. So he's already tried to avoid having to sit for depositions, and uh, the judge has ordered that he and his kids have to sit for depositions. But in, in addition to that, there was documents that were being subpoenaed by the Attorney General of the State of New York, Tish James. 
Now, when you hear about someone subpoenaing documents, there are two basic types of subpoenas. There's a subpoena for a person, for them to come and give testimony, whether it be before a grand jury or before court. But there's also what's known as a subpoena ducis tecum, uh, which is a subpoena for documents. And those documents are also returnable to court or to a grand jury. And in this particular instance, in the civil case that Attorney General James had, she was uh, subpoenaing the, um, the former president to provide documents. And there were eight separate requests for documents served on, on Donald Trump. And his lawyers, you know, as usual, tried to avoid um, giving over the documents, didn't want to give over the documents. The attorneys would sometimes say that um, either they did not exist, these documents, or they weren't in his possession if they did exist. Or they were also saying that uh, the attorney general was being overly broad and not specific enough and just making all sorts of claims about these documents and essentially not complying with, uh, with the court order. So Attorney General James asked the judge in the case to hold the former president in contempt. And what that means is saying, you aren't listening to the court. And so the judge said to the former president, Donald Trump, that he has to, uh, he ha and I, I keep repeating myself, by the way, that he's the former president, Donald Trump, because that's what I find incredible. This is a man who was elected uh, to serve this country, and you would think would uphold the laws of this country. But as we see over and over again, he does not. But so the judge, what he said was to Trump, you must turn over these documents. And Trump didn't. And over and over again. And so what uh, Attorney General James did is she filed a motion with the court asking that Trump be held in contempt. And today, on Monday, uh, April 25th, 2022, the judge uh, dealt a huge victory to the Attorney General and said that uh, he is holding Donald Trump in contempt of court. Uh, the judge said in, in, his, um, in his ruling, he said, I know you take your business seriously, as do I. And so essentially, I'm, I take this seriously, and I ordered you to turn over these documents, and you didn't. I'm taking this seriously, so therefore, I am holding you in contempt of court. I am saying that you did not follow my order. So basically, I, when I heard this, you know, I thought to myself, now what kind of contempt is this? Is it civil contempt or criminal contempt? Because there's two kinds of contempt. Now, civil contempt is uh, where the court... It, does things to try to get you to comply. So in this particular instance, Donald Trump is going to be fined $10,000 every single day that he does not comply by filing these documents with the court. So this is a civil contempt. In a criminal contempt, it would be, it's not about getting you to comply, it's about punishment. And um, they, sometimes you go to, actually go to jail uh, for being held in criminal contempt. Um, I also was curious if any other presidents former or current, uh, I should say former presidents, meaning while they were sitting or um, after they were no longer sitting, were ever held in contempt, uh, ever held in contempt before. And so a little Google research, I hope it was right, because you know this, this decision just came home today and I, I did this as quickly as I possibly could. Uh, I saw that um, Bill Clinton was actually held, um, was actually subpoenaed uh, and held in contempt over the Monica Lewinsky matter in 1999, and that was the first time a sitting president was ever sanctioned uh, over obeying or disobeying, I should say, a court order. 
Um, but apparently Jefferson, Nixon, and Clinton were all subpoenaed while in office, uh, Jefferson notably during the trial of uh, Aaron Burr. I know, I find these types of history, history uh, historical things very interesting, um, especially when you, you look back at our former presidents, unlike this particular former president, where literally in these allegations, you have uh, people talking about the fact that he uses post-it notes to send messages to his employees, and as we all know, he writes in Sharpie. So he is just not very presidential the way other presidents have been, and now he joins the ranks of people who have been uh, held to disobey a court order and who are being held in contempt of court. This is a man who plays by his own rules and who does whatever he wants and doesn't try to listen to anybody, and all he does is try to use the court system to either delay the inevitable, like he did with his tax returns at the Manhattan DA's office, who are uh, still prosecuting him criminally. If you recall, they went after him and he refused to turn over the tax returns. And he, um, although this was a, that was a state case, he filed a motion in federal court, like he's also doing here to Tish James, by the way, filing a motion in federal court to try to get uh, Tish James, the state court, uh, state attorney general in the state court where her, her matters and get it removed to federal court. So what's happening is uh, he, he's, he took that to federal court, and that's pending. But as I was saying, in the Manhattan DA's office, he used that tactic, and it worked. He um, got that case removed to federal court. The, that federal judge ultimately ordered that he had to turn over his tax returns. That was appealed to the circuit. It said he had to turn over his tax returns. And then it went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States, where they said he had to turn over his tax returns. But what he was successful in doing was delaying the case, and delaying the case long enough that Fivans would no longer be the district attorney, and it would be uh, the, the investigation, he was unable to be prosecuted in time, and when Fivans left, left office, the new district attorney, Alvin Bragg, became the DA, and as we all know, he has viewed the case differently than Fivans, and is, um, it did not go forward with the criminal investigation, although apparently it's still pending, but Fivans, it's been widely reported was ready to charge Trump uh, criminally, and it appears that Alvin Bragg is looking, um, would like uh, to develop the case further and perhaps get more evidence before he uh, is ready to charge Trump criminally. So, Teflon Don, here he continues, and uh, he, um, he continues to get away with a lot, but finally today, he, at least it's costing him uh, $10,000 a day, and it's hurting him in his, in his uh, wallet. So at least there's something. I'm hoping that he doesn't just go and hold some rally somewhere and take everybody's money to pay for his legal bills while he continues to use the court system to his own benefit and to manipulate the law. Well, those are my thoughts on what happened today. It's a big deal. It's stunning that he was held in contempt. He's a former president of the United States, and not a lot of people get held in contempt of court. to the midweek edition of Legal AF Podcast. I'm Michael Popak. I'm Karen Friedman Agnifilo. And we welcome you to come and get this week's serving of legal and political analysis straight from legal practitioners Popak 
and KFA. We're going to dive down into two topics today. One, I hate to say it's on the front pages and it's on everybody's hearts and minds, but we're going to talk about the uh, invasion and the human rights violations in the Ukraine by Russia and by Putin. But more particularly, since we are a legal show, we're going to talk about the International Criminal Court and war crimes which have been committed already, which we have all observed, unfortunately, on Twitter, social media, on every video feed we can find. As soon as Putin started bombing and targeting civilian sites, including the Kiev TV station this afternoon, killing five people, and the second largest city um, in Ukraine, targeting that as well, killing over 20 people, he basically committed a war crime. Uh, under the um, Rome Protocol that has established the International Criminal Court. We're going to talk about it. And then we're going to end the episode today with um, just KFA and I bouncing around about what it all means when the Supreme Court decides in a recent conference earlier in the week to call up a case involving a Colorado website designer for religious reasons says that she should not be compelled to create wedding um, uh, wedding um, websites for LGBT uh. Uh, community members that it violates her First Amendment rights and Supreme uh. Court has framed it in a novel way which may actually tip their hand as to how they're going to rule and we'll talk more about that in the back end of tonight's podcast. First of all Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. I spent the day in court today in the Eastern District of New York watching watching my husband, Mark Agnifilo, on trial in a pretty big federal trial. Yeah, see, that's something that other podcasts don't bring. Don't bring. The street cred of Legal AF, Ben Masalis, my co-anchor on the weekends, me, you, our day-to-day practicing attorneys, litigators, and trial lawyers, and we give our opinions and our, some people like to call it speculation, but based on a seasoned approach from years and years and years of experience, and you live and breathe it every day, even when you're not on legal AF, even when you're not in the office, because your husband is a well-known and successful uh, criminal defense lawyer the way you are. And so that was great that you got to, um, I mean, I'm sure you didn't just watch. What, what were you able to do today? <laughs> So he likes me to come to the big moments in his his trial to give him real feedback, and he knows I will give him real feedback. That's right. So uh, today there was the cross-examination of the main cooperator. This is a, um, a case involving... Um, uh, Goldman Sachs and uh, an individual named Roger Ang and a 1MDB Malaysia uh, fund where the allegation is that they were bribing everyone from um, from the, the prime minister to the king to just everybody under the sun and, and some pretty big names are coming up during this trial. Uh, I've heard Donald Trump, Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, Chris Christie, um, Leonardo DiCaprio, I mean, this this cooperator is, is You're quite the name dropper on today's well, podcast. Well, it's 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 the cooperator. It's yeah. stunning. It's yeah. stunning the people he's implicating as being involved in this massive uh, bribe scheme of people who are either um, involved in it or representing that him or palling around with him. He he's a big name dropper. So yeah. it's it's very interesting. 
Well, one name, it doesn't sound like he dropped is, is Putin, Vladimir Putin. <laughs> and that's somebody who we're now going to talk about in our discussion of what is the International Criminal Court? Where does it come from? What kind of jurisdiction does it have? And can it actually arrest and prosecute and put on trial Vladimir Putin for being the person most responsible for the war crimes that we are watching unfold, unfortunately, in the Ukraine, as that, or in Ukraine, I'm sorry, I keep calling it the Ukraine, because I am Ukrainian-American, and for the longest time it was the Ukraine, but since its independence, it's just Ukraine, um, as it fights for its survival and eventual membership, thank God, in the EU, which it looks like it's being fast-tracked to do. And where does this all start? Um, uh, and let me talk about, let me, let me frame it, and then uh, you and I, KFA, can, um, can dive in. The International Criminal Court's not to be confused with any segment of the United Nations. The United Nations has its own tribunals, um, not really going to criminal issues, but the International Criminal Court, while it cooperates and collaborates in, at times with the UN, is independent completely from the United Nations. It does not take a vote of the United Nations to make a referral to the um, ICC, which is how it's referred to, in order for it to be animated, in order for it to have life. If that were the case, then Russia would never be the subject of a prosecution because it has, as most people know now, ultimate veto power on the Security Council to veto any resolution against it. You'd think, well, don't they have to be um, recused? How are they voting on themselves? And the answer is no. The way the UN is set up, they can they can actually veto a um, a resolution, uh, you know, uh, condemning them for for bombing civilians in the Ukraine. But that's not the International Criminal Court that we're talking about, which was uh, formed in in the 1990s. And it, it, the foundation document that created it is something called the Rome Protocol. And now there's over 125 countries who have signed on to the Rome Protocol and have, and have passed it by resolution or otherwise. That court sits in The Hague um, in, in the Netherlands. And it is headed by, um, you know, there's a, there's a president and a vice president, but there's an office of, of the prosecutor. And the lead prosecutor, uh, Karim Khan has already announced that he is opening an investigation into whether war crimes have been committed and other atrocities have been committed by Putin. The other interesting aspect of the International Criminal Court is that it is funded by these 125 or so member states, member nations. It, um, Ukraine is not a member state but has um, signed on to the Rome, uh, the Rome Accord um, as recently as uh, 1999 and 2000, and then again in 2013 and 2014. So it is, even though it's it's a non, technically a non-member, it does have the rights to to trigger investigations and prosecutions under the International Criminal Court. Russia, of course, is not a member of the ICC, um, which makes the uh, arrest warrant and the execution of that arrest warrant and who's going to put a black bag over Putin's head and be able to get him over to the ICC. We'll talk about that in the back end of this segment because they are not, and I'm just going to make this clear up front, they, they are not, by the Rome Protocol, the ICC is not going to try Putin in abstentia, meaning he has to be present in order for this trial to take place. They have some, some protocols for not having the defendant present 
but um, not in the case of a full-blown trial. So they're, they're, so Putin's going to have to be caught and captured and brought before the tribunal, um, the ICC, in order for them to prosecute. And then the other interesting thing about it is, um, from a jurisdictional standpoint, like what are the crimes? And right on the books of the Rome Protocol, the Rome Court, is targeting intentionally civilians, which is exactly what we're watching happen right now as Putin, a frustrated Putin, thought he'd be taking Kiev in the first day or two, has been frustrated, and now has decided he's going to go to the most heinous set of atrocities and start just firing on civilians, including, I don't know if you saw this today, um, Karen, they bombed the Holocaust, I mean, on purpose, this is not an accident, um, there is a Holocaust uh, memorial, very famous one, Babin Yar in Ukraine, which is a memorial to all of the Jewish Ukrainians, and there were millions of them, um, definitely hundreds of thousands into the millions, that were that were exterminated during the genocide of the Holocaust. They literally went out of their way to bomb that, I mean, and the Freedom Square. So what, what's your takeaway from ICC and Putin and war atrocities, Karen? So this whole Ukraine uh, situation and this war against them is, is fascinating for many, many reasons. I mean, it's taken on the hearts and minds. It's certainly, it's certainly um, President Zelensky has is, is won over the hearts and minds of the world in a way that I don't think Putin predicted. And I think uh, it, it wasn't that way with Crimea. It hasn't been that way with other other sort of other times in, in recent history when Putin has done what Putin does. But this one in particular, I think he miscalculated. And I think that's significant for, from the perspective of the ICC. Because the ICC had an investigation open involving Putin that, that they pressed pause on, I think in 2014, uh, due to lack of funding. And I think part of that is there just wasn't the will. But this one in particular, I mean, in the middle of it, during it, there was this announcement that, you know, there's reasonable cause to believe that war crimes have been committed. We're opening up an investigation. And I think, I think the fact that, that this really does have worldwide bipartisan support was, is, is a major factor down. here in why they're, they're going forward. The ICC, uh, the International Criminal Court, is, is commonly referred to, I think, sometimes is the, the War Crimes Tribunal, or sometimes people say the Hague. You know, the, the ICC is the court, but it's, it's referred to differently depending on, on who you talk to colloquially. And it's made up of, of prosecutors who go there for a period of time and, and conduct these trials. I know several prosecutors who were seconded uh, to the Hague to um, prosecute war crimes over the years. And it's, so what is what does that what does that mean, Karen? Seconded. So it means that uh, it means that um, in in the case that that I'm thinking Grounded. of, in, in the individuals that I'm thinking of, it, they were prosecutors who worked for the Manhattan DA's office who applied for the job, and they were um, they were accepted for the job, and Cy Vance, the district attorney, permitted them to go and prosecute war crimes and and for a period of time, for a period of several years, as, as, a, as a public service, and uh, cool. before they would come back and that's be a prosecutor do. at the Manhattan DA's office. Yeah, that's, and, very, that's very interesting that that happened, and they ended up, and do you know which, one, which war 
tribunals, war crime tribunals they actually worked on? It was, the, the ones that I'm thinking of were uh, regarding the um, Yugoslavia, the, the, the various trials involving right. Yugoslavia, and there the were Milosevic. several. right. There were several, That's and the these are long trials. In. These aren't trials like sometimes, you know, like my husband's trial is going to be probably six weeks, maybe two months, which is also considered a long trial. Some of these trials that go on at the ICC in The Hague, they go on for years. They could go on for many, 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 many years. And these are these are trials that don't have a jury. Instead, it's several judges. I think it's, I believe it's three judges, and they present evidence, and it's, it's a really Real trial. Why do they go on? Let's say, let's say Putin. Let's say I could think of a couple of countries that have the ability and the desire to put a black bag over Putin's head. Let, <laughs> let's say that happens and somehow they are able to pick him up and bring him to the Netherlands um, and put him on trial and put him in, maybe in a box like the trials of Nuremberg when the um, when the Nazi war criminals were picked up and tried by primarily American judges and former American judges, but other judges from around the world participated in that in the world as well. And they bring them on, and it's all about, maybe they string together a bunch of things, but it's certainly all about what's happening now in Ukraine. Why would it take a number of years to try that kind of case against them? I think because it's so significant to bring a case. I, I think there's only been about 45 individuals who have ever been prosecuted by um, the ICC. And it's a very, it's a significant thing to accuse someone of genocide or accuse someone of war crimes or to accuse someone of crimes against humanity. Yeah, targeting civilians here, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so those are, that, that's a whole pattern of conduct. You know, you have to prove, for example, that it wasn't an accident. You know, I think they bombed a preschool today that was being used as a shelter and people died. And, and I think, you know, one of the things you have to prove is that it was not an accidental, you know, that it was a targeting of, a, of civilians. Um, that's part of it. And part of it is because you, you really do have to show that there is this long term, you know, these long standing sort of um, acts of aggression, another term of art, a crime of aggression, um, you know, that are being committed. Uh, by these these governments, you know. So, I mean, this is a, a, a major world leader, and you're going to want to put on evidence that this isn't just, you know, he's going to have all kinds of defenses and his own justification about why. I had no knowledge that the TV station in the middle of Kiev during its regular broadcasting, right before an invasion of armed tanks, you know, a whole group of 40 Thanks for coming. I had no idea they were going to. That was a total accident. We were aiming for the park behind it. Yeah, I, 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 well, I he's see also, also, think about it, the language that he's using. It's a peacekeeping mission, right? He has justification. He believes this is not an act of war and that this is completely legitimate and that he's permitted to do this. And, you know, you've got, you've got um, the Belarusians sort of, you know, underscoring that by kind of giving aid to, to Putin, right, that this is yeah. okay. And so, you know, they have their own version of facts that you're going to have to disprove um, to prove that this was, uh, was an act of war. In the beginning of this, about a week ago, I was noticing that the, um, that 
that Putin's military, they were allowing reporters from CNN to videotape them. And I thought, with the tanks, I mean, they're literally videotaping him going in. And I was thinking, how could they possibly be allowing this? I mean, Allowing it's, American it's, journalists to be embedded yeah, with the Russian military. Right, because it's right. so clear that, that that's proof of, of what they're doing. But in my mind, it just goes to show how delusional they are. And they yeah. don't realize that they genuinely believe they are justified in doing this and that they're not doing anything wrong. I think they think they're going to intimidate the world and show how strong they are. And I think they really miscalculated that the entire world would turn against them yeah. in, in doing this and support uh, support Ukraine. Oh, they, they've accomplished, Putin's accomplished more in gaining national stature, EU admission, um, and potentially NATO admission for Ukraine than, than they ever could have done in the next five. He collapsed five years, accelerated five to ten years. The Germans who were sitting on the fence with, well, we'd rather not. They're now, <laughs> let them into the EU. That everything. Right, yeah. everything. So, you know, he really galvanized in, in that way. And the one last thing before we leave the International Criminal Court, which we will follow as this prosecutor, Kareem Khan, opens his investigation and Karen and I will report back on developments that are publicly announced related to that or if anybody from the Manhattan DA's office goes over to assist in the prosecution of, uh, of Putin you'll let us know about that too the um, the last thing I want to leave it on is as Karen and I have alluded to or implied people are prosecuted by the ICC not nation states so it's not going to be um, Russia that's on trial it is the person human being most responsible for the war crime or the atrocity or whatever the ground, the jurisdictional ground is. In this case, obviously, it's Vladimir Putin. That's going to be the defendant on the other side of the V. Well, Pac, how can yeah. the ICC have jurisdiction over Putin if uh, he's not a member state? Yeah, that's a good question. I looked into that. It, apparently, you know, it's similar to our analysis that we use in American court system for how a defendant can be dragged in to, you know, whether it's criminal or, or state under a jurisdiction or a civil under a jurisdictional analysis, if they've done things to, I hate to say it, to target somebody or injure somebody in that state or that country, that's enough of a jurisdictional hook. So even though he's not, his country is not a member state of the ICC, he has done a war of aggression against a member state and therefore has given the prosecutor uh, a proper jurisdictional hook to drag yeah, I him think, in. I think, um, I think there are certain crimes that they have jurisdiction over him on and certain yeah. ones that they don't. So I think you are exactly right with the war crimes. Um, if there were civilian intentionally against civilian targets, uh, crimes against humanity, like rapes and murders, etc., cetera, uh, genocide. However, there is the crime of um, aggression, which is a new crime that was added to the ICC and the Rome Statute in 2018. And this is a new crime that apparently he cannot be prosecuted for unless, uh, unless the... Um, 
unless the United Nations Security Council um, refers that to the ICC, which is why the veto you were talking about earlier is so important and so significant. So I think the crime, and I think crime of aggression is, is probably the thing that he so clearly has committed. It's, it's easier to prove. But I think that's the, the issue here is um, in order to get jurisdiction over him and be able to prosecute him, they want, they're going to have to have clear violations of war crimes and, and the civilian targets, I think, are going to be the ones, uh, and the ones that are, um, are going to be key to the success in that, in that prosecution. Yeah, that's a very good observation about, and then tying it back to the UN, and, which sometimes, unfortunately, becomes sort of a feckless entity because it is so tied up in knots with the way their governing documents give to the superpowers, especially Russia, veto power while they sit on the Security Council, which is really the leading entity within the UN. It really controls everything that's important to anybody, especially when it comes to these kind of issues. So um, more more to come, unfortunately. I am sure there's going to be more counts of war crimes that we're going to watch unfold on our nightly news or throughout the day. And then KFA uh, and I will report back on that and give our analysis and our um, good faith observations from our experience about what's happening. Let's move on to our last part of our um, midweek edition of Legal AF. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court of the United States, SCOTUS, and what on February 22nd it decided to do at one of its conferences where it decides which cases it's going to hear for the remainder of the term. Opened the door by arguing this We're listening BS to Karen theory of there could have been another shooter on where that was, he shot him, not Legal me. AF. And the judge was right to make... Legal AF Midas Tudge. This is called Masterclass Legal AF Style Kidnapping, Entrapment, Criminal Cross, and Special Grand Juries. Legal AF, one year ago. A decision, basically taking it away from the jury to make a decision to allow in this evidence tie. to be read, the plea allocution for the missing person to be read into the record. And so to. Thank you both for your service. Came by X. To this Karen Agnifilo for it. Fire, of course, addresses door opening. Next and what does she say term. about that? <laughs> she says the that opening the door this this concept this this term of art that you just described does not apply because that's procedural and this is constitutional and what she said is yes judges have lots of leeway Friedman, Friedman. Ah. Okay. To conduct their courtroom in a certain way, and they can. There are limits. So, for example, you have a you have a right to confront your witnesses and to cross-examine them, 
but judges can limit that, right? Judges, if something becomes repetitive or if it's been asked and answered or if it's not relevant to what's, what's ha- to, to the crime or if it's overly prejudicial, there are things that, can, that judges can do that are considered procedural. And that's where, what, the, what the government was trying to argue that this was in this case, that opening the door um, uh, was just a, was, was, was not procedural, yeah. was procedural. Sorry. Yeah. And uh, what Judge Sotomayor said was, this is constitutional. And you can't, the Constitution does not allow you to open the door uh, to violate, to have the right, this, this bedrock right violated, as, as you and, described. And, and here's what she said. She says, here, it was not for the trial judge to determine whether Hemphill's theory that Morris was the shooter was unreliable incredible or otherwise misleading in light of the state's proffered uncontroverted plea evidence, nor whether this evidence was reasonably necessary to correct that misleading impression. That is for the jury. That is through confrontation and adversarial process of a cross-examination of a key witness here. Now, before, because I want to move on to our other two topics, there's just one question I want to ask you. In it has to do with cross-examination in, in a criminal proceedings. I think that'll be interesting to our listeners and followers because it is quite different than in a civil setting where you and I do other types of trial work. In a civil setting, for instance, I've already had the luxury of deposing, taking a deposition of the witness under oath for maybe seven hours if I'm in federal court, longer if I'm in state court. I have a transcript, I have a record, and when I prepare for trial and to cross-examine that same witness at trial, you know, I have I can invest hours and hours and hours almost memorizing his the, the person's testimony and, and actually, you know, putting little side tabs next to pages in case they deviate from their testimony and I, I'm able to, to do what's called impeachment in, in my cross-examination. That's the civil process. In the criminal process, you're now a defense lawyer. Do you get that type of process of depositions? Or how much time do you have bef- between learning you're gonna, there's going to be a witness for the state and the time you have to cross-examine? What is that interval like? It's very different, at least in New York. I, yeah. There are certain states, I believe Florida is one, where there are criminal depositions prior to trial. But in New in, York... In, in state, yeah, but not in federal. In state court, correct. Yeah. So every, yeah. every, state, every state is different, uh, in my understanding, is every state is different and has, has different... Um, has different types of procedures in a criminal matter. And New York is, is, is really one of the more restrictive from a defense perspective uh, states. It, it changed in 2019. There was a, a huge reform, a huge statutory reform scheme that provided discovery to uh, defense attorneys much earlier. It used to be, uh, prior to this, this reform, it used to be that you would only get discovery, meaning notes that somebody took of uh, a witness interview or tape recordings or photographs or medical records, just just any material, just any material in the case. It used to be that you wouldn't get it until 
closer to the trial, sometimes right before trial, sometimes during the trial. And there was, because New York was so restrictive uh, compared to the rest of the country, there was a, a, a big reform that now it's 15 days from the initial arraignment or 30 more days, so 45 days total, you have to get all discovery uh, before um, uh, before you can proceed. So it's much gotten much better. The playing field is much more level for defense attorneys. And there's more transparency. And frankly, people who are accused of a crime now know what the evidence is and what people are saying. I mean, how can you prepare for your defense if you don't know what uh, what I, the evidence is against you? I, I'm, and, I'm laughing because I've done federal white collar crime cases in defense where literally the prosecution announced at the end of day one of trial, for instance, um, okay, our witnesses tomorrow are going to be these three people. And like at least two of the three, my, my defense team and I would look at each other like, who are they? And, and they would hand yeah. us a folder. And that night, we would prepare our cross exam. I think one of the reasons I become very good at cross examination on the civil side is that like you in your career, I'm used to grabbing a yellow pad, drawing a line down it, going to the podium and cross examining the person on the spot without ever having seen a transcript or really anything that helpful. You, and, and, you know, that's trial by fire for you and I. That's what we got to do. It is. And it was a, it was a great learning experience. But the more it's interesting, the more senior you get, the more seasoned you get as a trial lawyer, I think uh, unless there's a, a danger of, of somebody um, sort of like a gang type of retaliation issue, unless there's something like that where there's a safety concern, generally speaking, the more senior, more seasoned prosecutors, even before uh, discovery reform, would just turn over their whole file in advance because you, you really don't win anything by playing. There's no sort yeah. of tactic, tactical advantage you get by making someone stay up later the night before. I mean, it's sort of a ridiculous and, practice, and, and, and I'm glad that New York moved in this direction. Yeah, and you could be, if you're a prosecutor, you could be buying yourself an appeal that, that was true. unnecessary. So let, let's leave Hemphill. We'll leave it with this. People might be wondering, what happened to the poor guy? Well, he, <laughs> they, they overturned the conviction, the Supreme Court based on this ruling this past week, and the prosecutors have said, well, we've got enough evidence that we're going to retry, and we think he's going to be convicted again. And of course, the defense is arguing for a whole new trial. So um, I, I'm not sure where I'm not sure if he just stays in, in prison or he gets released now that the Supreme Court has ruled. We'll have to get into that and report back next week. But let's move to a to a interesting, fascinating, almost ripped from, you know, like an episode of Ozark. Uh, this this yeah, governor this, case is, this case is crazy. I couldn't believe the facts crazy. of this case. And, and we're and we're going to be putting up tonight um, with our producer Salty a picture of what these guys look like, and they're all guys. And when you see the photos, you're almost like, well, of course they did it. Look look what they look like. But that that's just a little a little anecdote. Um, this is Governor Whitmer. This is a very serious matter. Governor Whitmer, who was who became unpopular because she was rightly enforcing COVID policies and masking policies in Michigan, got sideways apparently with a group of, I don't know what they were, but they decided here's a great idea, let's kidnap her while Governor Whitman is at her her uh, her uh, uh, house that's in the woods, her cottage, her, her hut in the woods. And they had a whole plan, like there was a bridge nearby, they were gonna blow the bridge in order to cut off rescuers. I mean, this was like crazy stuff. And they got caught, 
as they often do. Now, the trial of these six individuals, I think five actually, one has pled guilty and is being sentenced, is scheduled for March in Michigan. Um, the defense has put forward primarily an entrapment defense, which we'll talk about, which is an affirmative defense that they're going to put onto the jury with a different standard of proof, different burden of proof. We'll talk about that less than what the prosecution has to try to convince the jury by, in this case, a preponderance of the evidence that they did not have a propensity to be criminal. They're not criminals in their heart. No, no, no. They were dragged into this by the FBI who put this whole plan together in order to entrap them, that the FBI designed and implemented this plan and um, and then got them into it. And they've got those two prongs that they've got to satisfy primarily that the, the government put together the plan and entrapped them and they wouldn't have the, n the normal propensity to commit this crime anyway. I think that last prong they're going to have a hard time. They're going to have a hard time with. But but there's a there's a thing here I want to get KFA. I want to get your opinion on. There is a series of rogue undercover informants, apparently, that were working for the FBI, but that were double agents. And talk about cases that are put together by prosecutors in using informants and when sometimes those informants go awry and what it means for the prosecution. So this case I found fascinating because on the one hand, you've got these domestic terrorists that are that are being compared what they were doing here is was very much being compared to the january 6 insurrection i mean they they have names their, their group is called i think the the wolverines or the something like that um and they also they follow something called the the boogaloo boys i mean or the philosophy i think they're the wolverine watchmen and the boogaloo movement something like that it was just i couldn't believe it when i saw that and the other thing that i thought was so bizarre was there were more informants and undercovers in this case than i think most people would ever realize would be in a particular case. Certainly I haven't seen something like this before. Let me just explain the difference between what an undercover, uh, an undercover is and an informant. So this was a case that was on the radar of the FBI. And so they were the investigating agency. And what they decided to do, they, they felt like this was a, a um, this was sort of a, a domestic terrorist group that was, could be volatile and, and could be, disorganized the way the January 6th insurrection was, but yet with just uh, the light of a match, it turned into complete chaos and, and an insurrection. And they were worried that, that this had that feel. And, um, and so, and so what they did was they put some FBI undercover agents into the groups to infiltrate so that they could know what's happening, watch what's happening, and prevent anything terrible from happening, but allow the individuals to do enough that they don't cause harm, but they do commit a crime with which they can be charged. So it's this very delicate balance. And, and, and it's a little dicey because you've got FBI agents they're pretending to be criminals and they have to speak a certain way and do certain things. And there's all kinds of rules about, you know, how do you fit in with them if you don't engage in some of their behavior and yet don't 
commit crimes. And so it's very hard to be an undercover in infiltrating something like this. And but they had some of those some of those individuals. In addition to that, they also had informants and informants are regular people like you and I who decide that we're going to work for the government. I'm involved in something. It's either either I need money or it's crossed my moral line or I somehow decided that I'm terrified and I don't want to get caught. So I'm going to work with the government or they do get caught. And uh, and if they do get caught and they get charged, then they can flip. They become what's known as a cooperating uh, a cooperating witness or a cooperating informant. So there's sort of these different types of, of things. But this had all of the above. And not only did it have all of the above, it even Can had I ask a question before you move on. Does the sure. prosecutor does the prosecutor ultimately is that the person that approves the involvement and the hiring or the uh, retention of the CI, the confidential informant, the informant, the undercover? Is that all eventually have to be approved at the prosecutory prosecutor level? Only the com only the confidential informant, which is the one that's was charged and then quote unquote flipped uh, and works under a cooperation agreement. These uh, the the undercover agents, undercover police officers and informants, every law enforcement agency, local, state, and federal have all three of these and, and, and work them. And some are paid informants. They just, they get paid to tell them what's going on in the street and they never see the inside of a courtroom. Some are working off a case. Some are just doing it out of the goodness of their own heart, but they all have these things known as handlers, which is a person that they are, that works with them, tells them the rules, monitors them, etc. And in this particular case, they had both. But what, what I thought was, was so surprising is they also had someone in there named Steve, who was a double agent. And he was working both sides. So not only was he working as an, inf so he, he was pretending to be one of these Wolverine watchmen. And at the same time, he was giving information to the FBI and pretending to be an informant. But what he was also doing was he was taking the information he was learning from the FBI and then tipping off his his uh, his friends. And so he was a double agent. And there, there were a few other um, things that went awry in this case. I think several of the FBI agents have either been fired or not being called as witnesses. I think one of them was was arrested for domestic violence since since this happened. Another one was arrested for trying to start some business on the side. And so there's all sorts of stuff that as a defense attorney, you would want to use to cross-examine the witnesses. And, and the main defense here is it's the I did it, but defense, right? I did it, but I was entrapped. It's this 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 um, interesting kind of uh, legal this 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 legal concept that basically is saying that they told me what to do, or I was only you know they were I was only following kind of what they told me to do. They lured me into it, and it's well, a, it's a go ahead. What I found most interesting about that is and a reminder to our legal AFers out there, is that while the prosecution has the heightened burden of proving crime beyond a reasonable doubt, the, the affirmative defense of entrapment the, that's given to the defense is, is at a lower 
uh, burden of proof. They only have to convince the jury by what's called the preponderance of the evidence standard that that affirmative defense applies. So while the prosecutors like you in your former life have to find no reason, have to prove no reasonable doubt to get six, 12 or whatever amount of jurors, the defense team just has to, we, we used to talk about preponderance of the evidence in court when we do civil cases, as it's like a scale that's evenly balanced, but a feather lands on one one side of the scale, just tipping it just enough that the preponderance of the evidence is in favor of that position. That I yeah, think is also interesting. But it, is, it is interesting, but what's yeah. also interesting about this is don't forget the people or the prosecution have, or the government, whatever different places call it different things. Uh, the prosecution has the entire burden of proof. So 100% has the entire, the entire burden of proof is on, on the prosecution. And, and as you said, it's this high burden of, you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And that means a defendant and his attorney can sit there and not say a single word. They don't have to give an opening. They don't have to give a closing. They don't have to cross-examine anybody. They don't have to do anything. And the prosecution, the prosecutor has to prove 100% of their case beyond a reasonable doubt, every element of every crime beyond a reasonable doubt. What the interesting thing about an affirmative defense is, that does require the defense to do something. And that's what affirmative defenses are, is that it does require them to- Open their mouths. Prove, <laughs> yes, to open their mouths and right. to prove, but to also prove yes. uh, a lesser standard, the preponderance of the evidence, as you said, but they have to try to prove to the jury that uh, they ha it, it, yeah. it, it almost sort of, it doesn't really shift the burden to them, but it, it does sort of shift the burden. It's, yeah. a, it's an interesting concept in the law. But here, the entrapment defense, as I said, it was a, the I did it but defense. And, and it doesn't, I think historically, I don't think it has much success. A lot of people try to use it with, it, it, a good example would be, you got a drug dealer on the street and you've got someone who wants to buy drugs, but they don't want to go up to the drug dealer. So they they see someone standing on the on the side of the road, and they just say, "Hey, can you go get that for me?" You know, and and then that guy is the one who gets caught, and he's like, "Wait a minute, I, I, you know, I'm not really somebody who usually does this kind of thing." And and so the 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 standard that they use to um, to to sort of get over this hurdle is is uh, two concepts, the, the concept of inducement and predisposition. So were you induced to do this? And did you have a predisposition to do this? And, and I think and if you're in the Boogaloo Boys, you're going to have a hard time <laughs> proving you didn't have a predisposition. Yeah, but you know, I will say, yes, you are correct. And there were, I think, 12 informants and undercovers total, and there were 14 people arrested. I mean, you had a very large, um, a very large amount of informants and undercovers, and yeah. it's going to be very interesting in this case uh, because I know that the the if the people who are prosecuted are going to want to bring all that evidence yeah. in and the government's going to try to keep all that evidence out and this is going to be one to watch very yeah. interesting and we're going and to do that we're going to do that it's going to the trial looks like they've tried to, the defense has tried to delay it again but it looks like the trial is going to be in march and you and i will uh, report on pre-trial proceedings and the trial itself when it when it 
when it comes due. But we're we're coming up on the clock here. I'm sensitive to the clock, and let's let's do our third story, which actually Ben Mysalis, my co-anchor for the weekend edition, if you will, of Legal AF covered at least the beginnings of, and I just want to touch on it here. And, I, and my main focus in talking about the Fawny Willis, the DA of Fulton County, Georgia, who I think's got one of the strongest cases against Trump for criminal prosecution, because she's got an actual phone call from Trump involved with his fingerprints on it to try to find, find 11,000 votes. 11, votes. That's all we need, folks. And my perfect talk- phone call. My perfect oh, phone call. Well, everything's perfect with Trump. He's never done anything that's not perfect. But but you have you finally have Fawny Willis, who you know Ben and I reported on Fawny and her prosecution or her investigation months ago in the summer. We we put a little a little pin in it and told our listeners and followers something's going on down in Georgia with this prosecution. There's nothing really ready to report. Now it's reached a fevered pitch. She's gone to the Fulton County Superior Court Chief Judge, Judge Brasher. She's made a formal request to have a special grand jury impaneled, uh, which is different than the regular grand jury that meets to indict, you know, felonies uh, and other things you know, drug cases and, and robberies and murders and things. This is this is a special grand jury that will be dedicated only to the investigation surrounding Trump, Meadows, uh, probably Lindsey Graham, and their attempts to criminally interfere with the election process and overturn the election process in Georgia. It's going to be, be comprised of 16 to 23 people. And Judge Brasher has said in granting it, okay, Ms. Willis, you have it for 12 months, meaning you got a continuous group of people. All they're going to do is focus on this one issue for the next 12 months. And they have the power to issue subpoenas, to call testimony, but they can't, at least in Georgia, the special grand jury cannot indict. At the end of their process, issue a report of findings. Then if Willis from those findings believes that she has a case and exercising her prosecutorial discretion, she can take that to the regular grand jury to obtain an indictment. But you and I talked offline once about the difference between New York special grand juries, because they're different state by state, and the one in Georgia. What what are the differences that you noted? So a couple of things. Uh, it's very common to call for a special grand jury. So as, as you pointed out in New York, we have regular sitting grand juries that serve a, a term. Some of them are two week terms. Some of them are four week terms. And usually you sit for a morning or you sit for an afternoon every day during that period of time. And uh, you have to have at least 16 people for a quorum and at most 23 people and uh Basically, it's a it's where you bring any felony in New York, any felony charge that you want to uh, prosecute must be brought to a grand jury. And there's no hearsay allowed in the grand jury. So witnesses come in and testify and you can also subpoena documents. And it's a lower standard. It's it's a reasonable cause to believe that a crime occurred standard. And uh, there's no cross-examination in, in grand juries. And so it's also, uh, there's, a, there's grand jury secrecy as well. So if no one's charged, no one's going to know that you uh, even went into the grand jury or what you said, et cetera. So there's all these rules surrounding grand juries. 
and how they work. And some people think that grand juries are this pro forma. I think there was a famous quote once by, um, uh, I think it's some, I, who, I don't know who said I know, it. I know where said, this is going. Uh, yeah, you can you could indict a ham. It's so easy to seek, to get an indictment. You could indict a ham okay. sandwich. Right. I think that's slightly overstating Which sounds delicious. It. Which sounds delicious. <laughs> I think it's slightly overstating it. I mean, I've, I've basically had many trials in the grand jury because you have uh, – Defendants have a right to go in if they want. They have to waive immunity. You get, you do get immunity in New York too, by the way. So you got to make sure you got the right person in there because if you put the wrong person in there, they are immune from prosecution for for that that and crime. And that's different so, than in other states. A lot of states you is. don't get you don't get automatic yes. immunity because you go into the grand jury. And in some states that I practiced in, the defense, the, the defendant is not in the room for grand jury. Certainly not the lawyers for the for the. Uh, yeah. They have, no, well, they have the, no rights to say anything when they're in the grand jury. So, so, you know, you can have pretty intense mini trials in the grand jury. And I will say, too, the grand jury is with, with, with all of the, the podcasts like these and television shows. And in addition to that, just the advocacy groups out there shining a bright light and transparency on prosecution, jurors are much more savvy than the ham sandwich days. And grand jurors ask a lot of questions and are holding us, uh, holding us, I keep saying us, I'm no longer a prosecutor, holding prosecutors accountable. You're our prosecutor, KFA. Their feet to the fire. So so New York, that's the difference. But, But let's say I were still a prosecutor in New York, and let's say I were about to uh, investigate, let's say I was in the process of investigating a long-term case like the one um, the, the one here um, in Georgia, well, my understanding in, in this particular case is there are many witnesses who are refusing to cooperate with this investigation. And so Fani wants to, DA Willis wants to issue subpoenas and uh, force them, compel them to come in and testify under oath. And so by calling a special, calling for a special grand jury, A, you can do two things. A, you can have a much longer period of time. So let's say your case is, can't be done in two weeks or four weeks like a normal grand jury term, if it's a long-term investigation. And that's one reason why, why you would call um, a, for a special grand jury instead of a regular grand jury. And it allows you to continue to investigate the crime. It allows you to subpoena witnesses. It allows you to subpoena documents. And you can look at records, correspondence. Uh, people have to come in and, and testify. And uh, my understanding is that the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raff, Raffensperger, also has refused to cooperate thus it's, far. It's, we're going to get corrected. It's Raffensperger. I've been told okay. this by our, by our right. chat. <laughs> well, okay. I apologize uh, for that. But my understanding is he so far has refused to cooperate in the investigation. Yeah. Well, you can't you can't refuse a grand jury subpoena. Right. And just so everybody knows, a prosecutor doesn't have su- inherent subpoena power. The prosecutor has subpoena power through a court or through a grand jury. And really, when you issue a subpoena for someone to appear either in court or into a grand jury, 
they don't have to come to your office and speak to you first. They can just go straight to court and talk to the judge or the grand yep. jury. And so it's sort of interesting. And it's this is the teeth. It gives it gives uh, D.A. Willis teeth to continue this investigation and uh, see if they can develop a case, uh, yeah. you know, and, I, and, and bring a case. Yeah, I think it, 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 you, that's that's a good wrap up for that. I, I think it indicates that that she's gone as far as she can go in the last eight months without having these superpowers being given to her by the chief judge and now the special grand jury. She's not getting a level of cooperation that, that perhaps you got in, in other investigations. And I think one day, not today, because we're, we're at the end of our show, we'll talk about things that you know, uh, the SEC or the attorney general or different departments, while they may not have subpoena power, you know, I have clients that don't like getting a civil investigative demand either. Uh, and, uh, you know, legitimate companies do respond to these things and don't wait for subpoenas. This is the exception, not the norm. You know, when a financial services company gets a civil investigative demand from the SEC or its its New York equivalent, believe me, they act like they just got subpoenaed and they cooperate. But we'll talk about those things and the difference of all those things. I think that's the type of um inside baseball molecular level information that you and I are able to provide on a show like this with our with our component. But KFA, I am really enjoying, I find this to be delicious. I'm really enjoying our time together, the conversation that we're having, and by extension that we're teaching people um, and enjoying each other's company as well. So thank you for agreeing to do this with uh, Legal AF and do it with me every Wednesday. Um, shout out to the Midas Mighty and Legal AFers who know that Saturdays and Sundays are the main podcast with Ben Mysalis and me. Uh, we do a Saturday night, 8 p.m. Uh, and this uh, this is we're doing this Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. But Saturday nights, 8 p.m. And then we're going to be doing a rebroadcast right after that, repodcast right after that. And we drop the audio on every place where you can find your podcast. And this one will, of course, be, uh, I guess, Wednesday night or early Thursday morning. You'll be able to find uh, this particular podcast on Apple, on Google, and all of those things. Rate it. Review it. We've already seen some really nice shout-outs to KFA and to this show in particular. It matters. It matter. It keeps this show going. It keeps this show alive, which is really, really important. But uh, KFA, can't imagine a better way to spend 30 or 40 minutes on a Wednesday than with you. Thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And by the way, it's 8 p.m. Eastern for, oh, for everybody who's not in New you. York. <laughs> and why do I not? You know, that's so good of you to do that, because I did do an informal poll on my Twitter uh, over the weekend because we were getting a lot of people putting up the states and the countries that they live in on Legal AF. And at the end, a very nice um, one of our followers who's, who's American but is in Thailand, of all places, made a map, which I will post on our Twitter feed, and it came out that we currently have at least 42 U.S. states represented by legal AFers and 15 foreign countries uh, in our audience. So you're totally right about that. Uh, I'm being to New York. I'm only talking on East Coast time when, when we're, we're, we're literally global and around the world. We'll see everybody next Wednesday. Same time, same place.
bags. Baby! Oh shit, only 46%. Sucks. Why is that? Agni Filo. So, um, that was an ASMR, a nice long ASMR. I know, did you hear me? Um, I was working on the amp. Set it up to work with voice recording. Setting it up outside, setting up a recording studio inside, and one outside. Swalwell turns the tables unfiltered interview. Ooh. Welcome, welcome to On Democracy with FP Wellman. I am on Fred Wellman. You're in the right place. We have, I, look, I know that every week I say we've got a great show. I gotta tell you, I keep producing great shows, so I don't need to tell you. Matt agrees. Matt knows. <laughs> and we have an incredible show. Just an incredible show today. We're gonna be joined by Congressman Eric Swalwell from uh, oh, California Eric 14. Uh, yeah, Eric Swalwell's gonna be here. We're gonna talk about some of the hot stuff. You just saw him torching the uh, Republicans this week at the Judiciary Committee. We got yeah. a lot to talk about with him. Right. And I got lots to talk about. The world's crazy. The, the Republican clown show is crazy. I was just up in Washington, D.C. I met some cool people there. I'm gonna tell you all about that. I, I, there's just a lot to do. So let's not not wasting time. Let's get on with the show. Ah, welcome, welcome, welcome to On Democracy with F.P. Wellman. You're in the right place. I am Fred Wellman. I keep saying that because it's in the script. Hey, I am so excited to be here with you today. I'm so excited to have our great guest, uh, Congressman Swalwell, here shortly. Uh, a lot to talk about. But, you know, I want to talk about first, you know, as I do, you know, I, usually I start off some kind of poll or stat or insanity. Here's the poll and the stat this week. The United States Marine Corps is without a serving Senate-confirmed commandant for the first time in 164 years. I want you to wrap your head around that number. We're talking 1855, since this guy, the guy picture up here, uh, Archibald Henderson. Uh, if you know the Marine Corps, Henderson Hall is where the headquarters in the Marine Corps is in Washington, D.C. That guy, the very first commandant who served like 30 years, died in office in like 1855 or 1859. And that was the first time the Marine Corps had a commandant, the first time he had without. But they've managed to always have a commandant ever since 1859 until Tommy freaking Tuberville from Alabama. Right? He is now sitting on 265 holds of general officer promotions because he's made the call that he's going to sit on all of them. Now, we talked about it last week with my friend Ben Hodges. We talked about it a lot. But things are sort of heating up now and coming to a head. But I also want to take a little different angle. Now, just to recap where we are, if you haven't heard about it before, as you know, a senator has the privilege to place a hold on a nominee for office that is allow doesn't allow the Senate to conduct what they call a, a basically unanimous consent, right? Which is where everybody says, yeah, I dig the dude. 
vote. Um, and, and, and otherwise, they have to go to regular order, which means there's arguments, there's a time allotment for everyone to make speeches, and then you vote on that person. So the difference is, somebody said if they did all 265 of these nominees using regular order, it would take like eight months straight, doing nothing else but pr promoting all these generals. And what that means is that it's just almost impossible. So Hubbardville's really up upended the system, right? And and it's caused a lot of turmoil. And now they're all trying to blow it off, say, oh, well, there's an acting commandant, blah, blah, blah. But you have to understand the military command structure. It's a very big deal. But more importantly, you have to understand the military people, right? Our families are tired of being political tools. I've heard this from service members. You know, they just feel like the Republican Party today is just using them as a political tool, a punching bag. Just, they don't actually exist as humans. Their knees don't matter. In this case, you've got over 265 officers. Probably every single one of them, almost all of them has a family. At the age they're at, they're probably kids in high school or middle school or older who can't move, who can't go to their new school, can't move in their new house. They're just in limbo. This is a lot of lives because the ego of one man who insists stupidly that the Hyde Amendment law is being violated by the Pentagon, providing travel reimbursement to service members who have to seek care for having pregnant, having children, or abortion outside of the state with which they're based. Legal health care that's not available with when the place where they are stationed because the military is stationed there and they can't get it because that state's religious zealot uh, legislature has outlawed a, a normal part of medical procedures. And that's all it is. And so it doesn't violate the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment says the military can't perform abortions or can't pay for an abortion. They're not actually paying for the service member to get an abortion. They're simply paying for their time. Time. Getting back and forth. They can get back to service, get back to duty. That's it. But here's the thing I want to talk about a little bit too. Where's Mitch McConnell? I and mean, let's think about something. The one thing you constantly hear is old, old doddering Joe, right? Joe Biden, he's so old. Old Joe can't do his job. Joe forgets things. Joe doesn't have energy. He falls down a lot. All we ever hear about is Biden's age. Where the hell is Mitch McConnell? I mean, come on, you guys, you got to admit, you always knew in the past Mitch McConnell ran his caucus with an iron fist, right? He kept them in line. He led them where they, they were a solid block. This guy, Tuberville, is a junior senator. The guy's only been a senator for a couple of years. He's a junior senator. He's a backbencher in the Senate. He's nobody in the Senate. He doesn't hold any chairmanships. He doesn't hold any important positions. He is a generic senator. And one senator is holding up national security. And they've all expressed their, oh, we have dismay. Or, we, you know, it's all, it's uh, we, we, we have displeasure. You know, grumble, grumble, like this, this senator bullshit they always do. Yet McConnell can't grab that choke chain and rein his dog in. And what does that say about McConnell's rule? What does that say about Mitch McConnell's strength? You know, he had an accident a while.
Tristan for Pride. Give us time limits and. Uh, I said, call for Tommy Tuberville's explosion based on his national security risk. Suspend the Republican Party for cheating in elections, persecuting minorities, and January 6th insurrection. Remove them all at once so we can have special elections and give us term limits. Half women in Congress. Disappeared from it, came back. Talk about Joe Biden's strength for his job. Man, you got to question where the hell is Mitch McConnell's strength for his job? If he can't rein in this idiot who knows nothing about the law and knows nothing about procedure and then has the absolute audacity, the audacity to go on TV and say no one's more military than he is because his daddy served. Okay, folks. Your daddy serving doesn't make you military, especially if your daddy served before you're even born. Okay, it's ridiculous. Again, the Republican Party has become a complete clown show, and that's what's so great about having our guest today. Who well, I can't wait to join us in a second. If you saw what's happening last week with the on the House side with the big show. witness, right, Comer? Oh my God, Comer's going on TV talking about. They finally have their witness, and oh man, all those MSNBC people are going to be really embarrassed because they got a real, really good witness. And then the guy gets indicted by the Department of Justice, but not recently. No, no, it's a sealed indictment. This guy was indicted in October 2021 before the Republicans held the majority, before there was a Comer investigation, before any of that occurred. This guy was indicted for weapons trafficking to Iran, for being an unregistered foreign agent for China, being essentially a spy. The Republican leadership has been working with a Chinese spy to attack the president of the United States in any other world. In any, then we had like, like a guy, Joe McCarthy, like was investigating, were you communist? And we've literally got these idiots working with a guy being paid by the Chinese to attack the president of the United States. We should uh, all rejoice in um, Jared Moskowitz. Have invite Jared Moskowitz on your show, please. Send letters to Homeland Securities. And letters to to look into Yeah, tell us more about that. Have women in the Congress now. Demand.
We're half, we're half women in the Congress now. Half. Half women in Congress now. Half starting in, in Congress now is starting um, 24. Demand all parties have half women nominations on their ballots. Yeah. If we have half women in Congress, none of this shit will ever happen. Term limits. Yes, fucking States. term limits. And, the, and this is the America First Party. It's a fucking clown show. Oh, man, I used an F-bomb. I wasn't supposed to, Matt. Fascism <laughs> We don't have this show. You're stuck with that F-bomb. <laughs> you know, so, look, <laughs> it's a complete it's clown show. And I don't know how these guys are doing it. These guys and ladies are doing it. I don't know how they go to work every day up in that hill and deal with the clownery on their side, the stupidity of it. You know, Margie took... Green submitted a, a notice that she submitted an amendment today to pull us out of NATO. And her reasoning was, this is the chef's kiss. The reasoning was because Germany, for example, is not paying enough money to into NATO. She literally doesn't understand how NATO funding works. The percentage of GDP that a NATO member owns is not paid to NATO. It's a measure by which they are pulling their weight within the alliance. 4%. Okay, she thinks, I think she literally thinks these countries write checks to NATO and that somehow a 